dropped a shitload of money at the mall so i'm feeling pretty good i was gonna say and you're smiling about it you because i mean i'm i was never really a big shopper before covid but i have to say the upside of covid is that the mall isn't crowded anymore it'd be barely anybody in there so i was able to go in there and grab what i needed and run out and then also since they won't let you try on clothes again due to COVID I just bought everything that I liked and I get to try it on and I have four months to return what I don't like <laughs> that's a win okay, girl. I love the outlook I'm doing okay <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm gonna be by the time this episode air I'm gonna have already been drunk but I'm gonna be partying up on behalf of Elle's birthday weekend so I'm looking forward to that I mean that's all I can say how you feeling birthday girl right you got a lot of love on the gram you got a and lot Facebook. of love everywhere yep Facebook I just want to say that yeah happy birthday Thank you. Y'all love me. You really love me. It's been good. I actually feel excited. I'm happy. My birthday was a great day. I got a pedicure. Then I went out to lunch. Then I did some shopping. Then I went out to dinner. I got some cupcakes. So I feel pretty good. I, I will say I tried to make a cake and I had to put it on pause. Make a cake for your birthday? Yes. Because that's, that's so what I did nice. last year for my first quarantine birthday. You made your own birthday cake? Well, so I started to, but then I was going to make homemade frosting for this cake. It was a new cake I was making. And I just ran out of time because I was trying to do the most. So the cakes are actually in the freezer until I have time to frost them. <laughs> and one and actually also like one cake fell apart when I was trying to take it off the pan. I was about to say for your birthday, you better let somebody else frost them cakes. <laughs> Not what I want to do. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying. And I might just get to do that. Oh. Wait, huh? you you let somebody frost your cake for her birthday? Listen, I turn up for everybody else's birthday like it's my birthday. And this is a norm. What are we talking about here? Okay. All right. Elle, where's the lie? No, there is no lie. She's telling the truth. Uh, Ask about Evie's birthday. I turned up for Evie's birthday like it was my birthday. Everybody's okay. birthday. All right, boo, dude. Sure, hey. our birthday just fell on the same day, so... You just get in a mix. I just, uh, I know, Miss. I'm going to Egypt, and y'all leaving me over here stateside by myself. No, 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 no. No, no. You choose not to go. I yeah. had to buy a car. Move but... along. <laughs> <laughs> Do the strings louder, L. Strings louder. Exactly. 
Crimea River. Anyway, what's going on in the news? So first of all, before we officially start, we have to pour one out for the homie from my boo, Earl DMX Simmons. Mm. to your memory. Take a look in that. Okay, I'm sorry. Okay. It's okay. I love DMX. I do too. Jesus. I'm so sad. And he, you know, KB, you're the one who told me about the Rough Riders series. Documentary. Yeah. Documentary. And I, I have not watched it yet, but I will. I'm like, you, I know. Don't, don't look at me crazy. I'm looking at you crazy because I think like things that they're putting out on the internet now, that's why it's so nice to be able to tell your own story. Like I think yeah. I see the purpose of that so much more now. People are definitely taking clips from other interviews. But it's like, you would have learned a lot of this from that docuseries that they did. I think BT had done a great job with it. I had to watch, of course, the uh, Master P, the No Limit Soldier one. And mm-hmm. then the Rough Riders one came on after. And they did an excellent job with that. Like, DMX literally tells that story about how he got on drugs. I did not know that before. I didn't know he was 14 years old and his mentor offered him up. And then the the really interesting thing is they actually interviewed a mentor guy they go to him and they ask him he of course denies it but they try to do a real journalistic way of really telling this full story and you know you were looking forward to just the dmx story of Mm -hmm. them doing the same thing with just him by himself because the focus really was on the entire rough riders camp I mean, I didn't even know some of the founders, like they were so much in the back, the back, you know, stage, but it was, I, I implore anyone who has not caught that, BET did it, Rough Riders docuseries, it was really good, like I enjoyed it, DMX, he really did live in the pain, like, you know, even listening to Swiss Beats, who I'm not a fan of, listening to him on IG Talk, I think really brought tears in my eyes, because you realize how much he did suffer still, you know? Right. Yeah. Um, you know, people, like I said, you know, we were talking about this on our text group, but everybody says rest in peace, but Lord, he really is about to rest because just thinking about all the things that he was going through, he now- In this suffer. life, yeah. yeah. That's a sad yeah. situation. So what's your favorite DMX song? It's so many. It's so many. But no, for, for I'm me, gonna I name to... one because I can yes, name please one. five. I know because you know one. Yeah, an honorable mention. Yeah, I'm gonna say slipping. Okay, that one was a story, and I loved it. Anyway, Ms. next. L. So I'm gonna say what these bitches want. <laughs> <laughs> of course. <laughs> well, okay. For two reasons. One, it's fe- like this song came out my senior year of high school and it was the first time that i heard my name in a song it's not oh, for that's a good, why it's like not it. for a good reason though it's, it's not a, well it's not a good it's, reason it's not well, honorable mention yeah 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 hit that pee that pee so. <laughs> that's fine but also 17 year old l didn't know no better okay she was a little green she was a little innocent a little naive around the edges I just knew he said my name in a song. Oh God! Uh, mine would have to be "How's It Going Down." Like I yeah, just I like think, that yeah, that was and, my honorable and, mention. <laughs> him and Faith. That's yeah, that's that's my one. But 
So prayers out to um, DMX, his family, his friends. And also, I know that it wasn't on the treatment, but I felt like I had to mention this too, because I also found out one of my childhood crushes passed away a couple of weeks ago. His name was Quindon Tarver, and he was a part of the whole immature camp. Um, So he had an accident um, right outside of Dallas and he unfortunately passed away. So I don't know if y'all remember a couple of years ago when the whole thing came out that Chris Stokes had molested some of the members of Immature as well as people from um, B2K. He was also one of the individuals who was allegedly uh, molested by Chris Stokes. So he had a tragic life as well. And he passed away at the age of, I want to say he was 38, 38 or 39. So just had to throw that out there too. Oh my gosh. So I just also want to mention, that's sad. Um, I also want to mention his crime story, you know, shout out to our other producer on the show today. Uh, that was his favorite. And, you know, just thinking about, like you said, those pain, like even the Chris Stokes, you hear all of these stories. One of those things I think DMX did put to light is kind of telling that pain story. You know, I think about him and Mary J. Blige. If y'all think about their, you know, synergies, how in their music that it comes across, you know, we know DMX always prayed and I just always thought, you know, but I guess I wasn't in God's will. But anyway, you just see those prayers come through. So yeah, that, that Chris Stokes, I never understood that situation, but I know it ain't on the treatment today. We, we need to talk about that one day, but anyway. Yeah, we'll, we'll talk about that in the future, but going back to DMX real quick, and I know we got to move on. Um, somebody did make a post on Facebook and I thought that this was so true. So it was like, you know, how DMX talked about how, he had like a really rough childhood and all of that but thing that was so cool about DMX was that he made it okay to talk about your demons and nobody ever thought that he was like weak for that like he was always applauded like it was a very good show of what being masculine is but also being able to show your vulnerable side and telling the story of things that might've happened to you that isn't, you know, the most positive. So I also wanted to speak up when that, like he was able to talk about some of his mental issues as well. And nobody looked down on him for that. So we miss you DMX. Hopefully you're at peace now. And what's next, L? Well, both sides of the Derek Chauvin trial, they rested. So by the time this episode comes out, they would have started with their closing arguments. And from the little bit that I read, because I haven't been following it because I've been trying to protect my peace, mm-hmm. you know, every expert that they, you know, essentially put on the stand basically, you know, said it was not drugs that contributed to George Floyd's death. It was a lack of oxygen. So for the jury to come back with anything that is not a not guilty verdict, Like, I just don't understand how that can happen. So even thinking about the trial for Derek Chauvin and how Kim Potter was arrested swiftly for the murder of Dante Wright, but also even how Chicago police shot 13-year-old Adam Toledo. And it's sort of like, when is this, when is it going to end? It's not. That's what I was about to say. It's it's not going to end. No, it's not. No, no, end. no. It will if they put certain pl- things in place. You start t- touching these pensions. You stop protecting these officers so that they cannot go and get like they're protected. Uh, you know, I was having this discussion with my cousin 
who, you know, who's has a military background. Now I've mentioned him before because he, to me, seems to take up for these cops often. And, you know, he's like, well, if you as a pharmacist or a doctor have as a malpractice, if we have a malpractice, we, we can lose our license and we can go to jail. Like exactly. we can be brought up on charges. These people are the only ones that are not liable. Like they don't have to go up or they are protected with these unions and so forth. Like, oh, they can just claim that they were, they were sprayed for their lives and this nothing else happens. No, that doesn't happen in any other profession. Any other profession, you will meet your maker. I sat on a review board when there was an error, a medication error in the hospital. I've sat on those review boards where we take that case and look at it inside and out. So don't act like you, you, nobody else has the same thing. Y'all the only one that don't have it. But yeah, I mean, I think the part that's the most frustrating is, is that there is a real lack of accountability. And although we, everybody's seen the video, well, I personally haven't seen the video because I'm like, I don't want to see that. But it's just, I'm kind of bracing myself because I feel like although his murder was captured on video and it was out there for everybody to see, I still feel like he might get slapped on the wrist, but he's not going to get the real punishment that he deserves. So I think that's the frustrating part of this whole thing is that we keep seeing this scenario play out over and over again, but there's no real accountability that's taking place and it feels like you know if you're a cop or more specifically if you are a Caucasian cop you're gonna walk more often than not so that's the reason why I'm, I'm just not optimistic about it but I'm hoping that they do the right thing me too Shug. so even thinking about doing the right thing the house judiciary committee actually approved hr 40 which um, allows for slavery reparations for the direct descendants of those who were enslaved in the United States. So that actually happened on Wednesday, April the 14th. And the bill was actually first introduced in 1989 by Michigan Democrat John Conyers. And the bill actually got its name from General William Sherman's field order number 15, which promised 40 acres and a mule to former enslaved people at the end of the Civil War. So this is huge because this bill essentially is almost 30 years old. Yeah. You know, finally, there's a glimmer of hope maybe you know that this could pass um but you know we'll it's still very very early to see where this is going to end up and if it actually will in fact pass yeah i mean it would be nice but i'm i'm just not optimistic about that either sorry to put a damper on everything but i'm just like mm, after seeing how everything's been going Thus far, as long as we've been alive, um, I can't, I can't name like a good outcome when it comes to reparations or you know cops doing something and having to pay for it. I'm, I'm just not but optimistic. Are, but when you think about it, aren't both of these great examples of how America really has not had to take responsibility for the things that it has done to Black people? Absolutely. Whole or individuals absolutely but I honestly feel like things really probably won't start changing until 
minority populations start becoming the more the majority or once there are like more mixed people so I feel like as long as white people are the majority of the population in America things like this are going to continue to happen and I'm not anti-white people by any means but I just feel like the system is set up it's stacked in their favor so once the tides start turning, then I feel like maybe we'll start to see some of that change that we've been fighting for. But here we are over 400 years later, and it's like we're still fighting the same fight. True. Another interesting thing, because a lot has been happening, well, clearly because Congress is in session, but another bill that is headed to the House floor is whether or not D.C. should become a state. So by the time this episode comes out, the D.C. statehood bill will be introduced on the House floor. I have to admit, I personally am torn. Um, I don't, because, you know, being a D.C. resident, I definitely, you know, understand and feel the brunt of taxation without representation. I, but I feel like instead of making D.C. a state, there should probably be other things put in place so that residents of DC are treated like residents of other states. Because for me, because when you think about like US territories and I'll use Puerto Rico as an example, like Puerto Rico has like representatives in Congress, right? But they don't pay federal taxes, whereas DC residents do. So my thinking is, you know, either give us those same rights that residents of the other 50 states have or Quit taking out federal taxes from my paycheck. I can agree with that. That's all I'm saying. I think that makes sense. So, I mean, if I was a resident of D.C., I would probably feel the way that you feel about Puerto Rico. Like, Mm -hmm. give me a representative. But if I don't reside in a state, what am I? Where are my taxes going? Right. Well, and the other thing is, too, is that we do have representation in the Senate and in the House. The only thing is, though, is that neither, none of our representatives can vote. So that's the other issue. So what's the point of having a representative? Exactly. Interesting. Okay. They can, like, help write bills. Like, they can help lobby to, like, other, you know, to their, you know, peers or what have you, like, if they want a certain bill to pass. And like I said, they can write bills and sponsor them and co-sponsor and all that good stuff. They just can't vote. Uh, that's still whack as hell, but okay. I agree with you a thousand percent. So either let our representatives vote or quit taking out federal taxes on my paycheck. Agreed. Mm -hmm. KB, do you have any thoughts on DC statehood? No, because I don't live there. Go ahead. Wow. So you all actually brought this to my attention about one of the co-founders of Black Lives Matter is considered to be a fraud after buying all these luxury houses. Wait a minute. First of all, I don't think it was all these luxury houses. I think it was one house, right? And I, yeah. I feel like that title was freaking misleading. They're upset because she bought a million dollar house or a $1.4 million home in a white neighborhood. Is that what we're upset about? I'm I just... Because I, I think just, they trace the money. So let me just say this too. Like I've been watching one of these professors by the name of uh, Karen Hunter, who has a show on YouTube. And this was a show that was back in like August, September. 
And I know she mentioned Black Lives Matter and really, you know, talking about the entire movement and, you know, they were kind of, you know, it was her and Dr. Greg Carr and they were kind of talking about watching where money goes when, you know, you have these movements and stuff. And, you know, I know Dr. Carr had commented, I know you've been watching it. And she mentioned Black Lives Matter. It was so timely that this conversation was coming up, right? And I know the time she said, I watched where that money is going. They're doing things even quietly that's not necessarily out in the public. Now, the $1.4 million house, I guess my question is that we cannot automatically assume that she has done something with the money. She could have gotten that off a of book deal, separate things that she has been able to propel because of Black Lives Matter. I think a lot of times, and this is like historical, we've seen where they've tried to take down certain people when they're getting too strong. This lady got a, a major ass move, a major ass movement that is changing things. You don't think they want to take that down? You don't think the establishment want to take that down? So let's put out this article that starts out with co-founder found to be a fraud after buying a $1.4 million home. What is wrong with her wanting to be in a nice neighborhood? So You want her to hood? Right. Wait. Well, that's the other thing that they bring up in the article too is about the demographics of her neighborhood and the district that she lives in because it's 88% white and 1.8% 1, 1. black. So of course people are upset about that too. I mean... <sighs> I, I see both sides of the fence. People are also forgetting that this woman has a book deal. So she could have used that money from that book deal. She yes. also has a multi-year deal with Warner Brothers. So you can't say that she's taking the money Black from Lives. the movement. Exactly. Yeah. So Thank you, Shug. And I, I think mean, that's what that article looks like. And Oh, because she want to live in a white neighborhood. What if she ends up flipping that shit black? Like, you know, we think about gentrification as the white people coming in and moving in. What if you get a black sister in the, you know, they gonna start running out the neighborhood. What if you start transitioning that neighborhood to a, I'm not saying that's what's happening, but do we fault her because she want, wanted a particular house? I only see it a problem if you took the Black Lives Matter movement money and did this, which like she'll just pointed out, her money is coming from other sources. Yes, she's profiting off of what she's done, but that has nothing, as long as those funds that are earmarked for the movement are not being touched, I don't give a shit where she lives. I don't know. I also feel like Black people, because I'm like, I give it to white people, I'm going to give it to Black people too. I also feel like sometimes we have this perception of oh, this person made it and you expect them to stay in the hood. And it's like, you kind of can't because then you become a target. You know what I'm saying? Like if people feel like you have money and they know where you live, some people aren't afraid to like pop up where they feel like you owe them something because, you know, you have all this money. So spread the wealth. But I'm Nip like Nipsey Hustle. That's all I'm going to say. You can't always stay in the same neighborhood. It don't really work out like for that like that for us all the time. Yeah. So I don't know. I just thought that that was really interesting. I mean, because a lot of people are coming for her. There's another um, young lady who's involved with Black Lives Matter and people feel like she's sold out or she's using the platform to kind of further her own personal agenda. But I can't remember her name right now. But I just think I thought that was a very interesting take. So we could share 
that article on our social media platforms if the listeners would like to read it. Right. So today's conversation is going to be, I think it's definitely very interesting. And I think also definitely kind of at the forefront of mine and KB's lives, since we'll really be focusing on education and how it has really changed over the past year during, in KB's words, quarantine time. So we are going to have a few guests on with us to sort of talk about their experiences uh, regarding education over the past year and how it's changed for the worse and or for the better. So I'm excited about this conversation just as a mother, because I have been screaming to Elle and Shook this entire pandemic time, especially since I've been in and out of this kind of cycle, right? So we want to welcome some guests on today. I first, well, you know, my friends love me. Like, she's actually like past my friend. She's my sister from another mother and father, but we're still sisters. Not just Sora's, but sisters too. So I want to welcome back Dr. Ashley White. You all may remember her from episode 50, Changing the Game. If you have not checked out that episode, please go back and check that episode out. It was an awesome one. We had a Grambling coach on and it was just a great conversation. And you all know she's our expert when it comes to education and her background. And so I was like, hey, can you come on real quick? Like y'all 10 minutes before the recording. But listen, this is how I know she loves me. And that's all I'm going to say. So welcome, Dr. White. I do love you. Thank you so much (laughs) for having me on again. Again. And so I also want to, you know, welcome our newest uh, member of our family. I'm going to call this the podcast family. Y'all, we about to make history today. And I already gave her a heads up, but I'm about to say this because everybody expects me to. But we have our first person of Caucasian descent on this show. And you know, I just like that shit is monumental. What do y'all say? Y'all pray for KB, okay? Please pray for her. (laughs) But once I introduce her, you will know like why she is here today because I I knew just from her post, like y'all, she gets it cracking on Instagram and I love it. Uh, Just her passion. And I will disclose that I've also known this individual for damn all my life. I don't know, just about all my life. So I want to welcome Dee to the show. Welcome, Dee. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. I'm honored. (laughs) She got that. Yeah, she got that special treatment. So let me just read off your bio because the audience doesn't know you and I want them to get to know you. So Dee received her BA in religious studies in 2003 from the University of South Florida and moved to NYC right after graduation. She started at NYU for a MA in Individualized Studies in 2004, focusing on China's history and economic development. In 2008, Dee started the NYC's Teaching Fellows Program and received a Master's in Teaching English to Speakers of Other Languages in 2010. Dee has been teaching for close to 13 years at a high school located in the Bronx, teaching both English as a second language, English language, arts, and history. Dee really does service a minority population where most of her students are from an immigrant background, including Dominican Republic, Yemen, I hope I said that right, but also including Bangladesh, Pakistan, Congo, Mexico, and many more. She's taught a wide range of students over the years, 
from those with no education or literacy prior to being in the classroom to those who have received very rigorous education in their home countries. Currently, she's teaching AP English, 11th grade, and two lower proficiency ESL and ELA classes, both 9th and 10th grade, and also an active member in a teacher's union. Welcome to the podcast, D. Thank you so much. And I also want to, you know, mention, and I think everyone knows Elle's background as being an administrator for a high school. So we have a lot of range. And also um, our tech guy that's on right now is also a professor. So we have a whole range of people that can really speak from a, this, you know, this topic on COVID in dealing with students, you know, from a wide range of even elementary up until the the college level, right? So, you know, let's go ahead and kick this off. And I'll start it off just kind of speaking as a parent. And I think I've talked about this on the podcast before where, you know, you have to know your kid, right? And I always say that, and, you know, Dr. White knows Kay. And, you know, I think it's one of those things where I knew that she would not do good in homeschooling. And, you know, we experienced this right when the pandemic happened of her being home with me my job, everybody knows my career is super rigorous. Like it's calls all day, just the things that I have to do. I work a lot. I work after hours. Everybody knows that. And it was just really hard to balance homeschooling her with working. And I have been one of those parents and I know it'll be like, you know, y'all, now you guys know how hard it is for teachers. I've never disputed that. You all know that my mother was an educator for over 30 years in the school system. She went from the classroom to being a staffing specialist, placing kids in special ed programs around the county. So I've always had an appreciation for educators. That's never been my story. I remember being a kid and we have to go, you know, in the summertime to go, you know, to decorate her room when the school year started. So I've always had probably a more heightened appreciation for educators that I know that everybody else doesn't have. Like, I, I, I'll give it to you, Elle. You ain't just talking, but... That wasn't for me. I also know my strengths and I know my patience level is not there and I know what type of child I have. So one of the things I did, you know, just kind of struggling from that March 2020 time until the summer, I remember in June, we went to my hometown just for that last month of school because I just needed help. Like my mother literally had to step in just to help me. I'm, you know, way here in the Northeast. I don't have family here. So it was, it was hard. It was super hard. I ended up changing her schools. She was in a charter school. I mean, free education. I changed her school to a private school so that she could go in person. And so the school she's at now is a Christian school and they are doing in-person learning. But of course, when cases come up, it's really back and forth. So there's some weeks she's home, some weeks she's in school. It just really depends. So it's been super hard as a parent because I think one of my biggest concerns is her falling back. And because education is so important to me, I'm like constantly on her. I'm texting the teacher, emailing the teacher, like, okay, what else is she missing? And it's just been bananas. So I think I want to open this up for, you know, D as an educator yourself. And, you know, L, feel free to chime in and, and shook too. Um, we had Dr. White on just to kind of give us some more, you know, that concrete, you know, learnings from a research standpoint. But what has been your experience, I think, overall, D, with this situation? Well, high school is really different from elementary. Elementary and like middle school requires like 
you need someone in the room with the child. Like that's, that's like almost uh, the, this, the kids aren't self-sufficient at that yeah. level. High school, it's, there's more self-sufficiency, but like dealing with the, um, like a lot of my students are just learning English as they're learning the content. And some of them, like I received two new students this week, they're learning how to use a computer. And so like they, I mean, I even have to like work with them one-on-one. -on -one. They've opted to be in our building because you have the choice in New York City. You can be in person or you can be remote. And oh, so, I didn't know that. It really yeah. seemed like on the news that you guys weren't in no, the- No, I go into the building. Yeah, no, oh. we're, we're, we're open for business. It's, it, it's up to the parents and we just closed our last opt-in period. So we're gonna have another group of students come in. So yeah, I mean, I I 100% see your point. Like the the younger students and the students students who struggle, special ed students, to not have that in person element is is like basically not getting an education. I, I completely agree with that and see that. And like even the teachers, when we were thrown into this in March, there was no framework for remote teaching whatsoever. We we jumped in and just like tried to keep our head above water. And there's so many things I attempted that failed miserably. I thought mm -hmm. this would work. I thought that would work. They didn't. I mean, I've come up with routines a year later and I'm able to, to maintain, but it's, you can't take the physical real world with space and time and stick it in the virtual world and expect everyone to learn and switch over like that. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. And it, it, I mean, it is, I, I mean, I have, I have parents, we have students even as high schoolers that aren't completing their work and their parents are out working and doing their thing. So they can't be on top of their child. And so it's, and, and to just get a student on the computer to meet sometimes is a struggle. Like I will talk to them and like, yes, I will be there. And then they don't show up, wow. you know, and there's nothing you can do. And then administration's hounding me to call, call, call. Parents just get angry because they're overwhelmed. You know, like there's, there's so many layers yeah. to what's going on right now. Dee, I really appreciate what you had to say as an educator. And I just want to give much respect to the fact that you are in the trenches. And I have to <laughs> say, before I embarked upon my journey in academia, I did teach for 15 years in our home county. So yeah. I understand what you're saying and much respect to my administrators and other fellow educators on the call as well. I do want to provide just a brief counter narrative quickly around elementary school students, right? You'd be surprised at how sufficient they really are. And Not mine. Well, I'm getting to that. <laughs> Because I also, I, I'm getting to that. I'm sure there's some some self-sufficiency in K, but you're too close. You're in the frame, so you can't see the picture. But I just want to encourage us as we think about what's happening, particularly to our marginalized students, to reframe that narrative, right? We talk so much about what they're not getting, that they aren't learning, et cetera, et cetera. And I have a colleague and her name is Dr. Rosemarie Allen. And we had this conversation and it was a light bulb moment for me. We spend so much time thinking about what they haven't gotten during COVID that we don't spend time thinking about what they have gotten. And let me tell you something, our black and brown kids, our students with disabilities, our students who are at the intersectionality of both of those continuums, they're getting a lot of things that they never got in, our, in that westernized structure, right? There's so much 
our black and brown kids are learning at home with their parents that they could never have learned within the systems of education that we currently have. And I know you may not see that KB, but I'm sure Kay has picked up on so much from a cultural perspective, from a self-sufficiency perspective, from a self-advocacy perspective, from a self-efficacy perspective as a young black girl that she could not have gotten in school, right? And, and so there's a lot of opportunities I just want to speak to the fact that there isn't a, a converse narrative, right? There's deficit, sure, but there's deficit within some parameters. But our black and brown kids are learning things during the pandemic that they could have never learned and would have never learned. And to continually push the narrative that they're not getting an education is, is implicitly to say that our black and brown parents don't know how to educate their own kids. And there are some spaces where we provide components of education for our children that far surpass anything that they could get in the brick and mortar classroom. And I say that as an advocate of reopening schools, right? There's There are continuums of education and, and segments of what we can teach. And I, I think our charge as educators is to not only think about the, the traditional normalized learning that they've lost, because they need that to get by in this world, right? Let's just face it, right? We'd like it to be different, but they have to have that in order to get by in a world that's dominated by white society. But there are these other pieces that they've had the privilege to pick up since they've been away from that type of structure. And so our charge as educators is to not only think about what they've lost, but to bring all that they've learned from their cultural domain back into the classroom so that we can enrich their experiences even more. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm okay with doing that, right? Like, I don't wanna sound like negative Betty, but I think for me, I, I, I'm trying to sit here thinking like, well, what did she learn that she couldn't have learned the only thing I can tell you is she probably knows more about research because she hears my conversations about research, right? But this is clinical trials. This is something she might not necessarily go into, but she's better able to see. She sees mommy's on call all day, right? She she hears me. And, and listen, here's a funny thing. So thank you for bringing that. I had a, a, a call that I was leading the other day. It's concept roundtable. We're coming up with evidence generation ideas for next year from a research standpoint. And I'm leading these efforts. And so I had to get ready. And so I'm doing my opener. Uh, we were having a theme of, you know, Shark Tank. So I'm doing the opener. I'm the host of the show. And she sits down and critiques me. Mom, can I give you some feedback? Oh, well, okay. And she uses these words. So maybe, you know, it was really cute. And she gave me good feedback. And I told her, you know, but I think I only think about the when I look online and on Google Classroom and you ain't submitting an assignment, like that's what's going on in my head. So it's hard for me to sit back, like you said, cause I'm in the trenches to really take that moment to see really what she has learned that she wouldn't have. So thank you, because I don't want to see like, I can't teach her. I never, I know I can teach her. I just know I'm not good at it because my patience level. And I, and I know Elle has something to say, but I just want to say I'm in no way meaning to peg negativity on you. Because no, I know that. I'm just saying. Yeah, just you have a different perspective as a parent. You know what I'm saying? And that's yeah. not something I have. So I appreciate that. But what I am saying is that there are different types of learning, right? And they're yeah. learning something at home. Imagine what that does for Kay when she sees her mommy in that position. Imagine what that's going to do for her, You're right? right. That, that, right. that's you're not, always right. I hate it. That, that's Go. not something she can get anywhere else. And so 
those are the kinds of experiences. And I think Elle's an administrator. I'm hoping she's going to agree with me on this <laughs> around this topic of just making sure we bring all of that together. Right. And trust me, no matter where you put kids, they're going to learn. That's inevitable. So when we say kids aren't learning, that, that's that's a fallacy. They're going to learn no matter where we put them. Kids learn on the street. Right. So they're learning. We just have to pick up on what they're learning and utilize it to help them meet those normalized expectations when they get back into the classroom. That's what I'm worried about, the standardized test. Go ahead, Elle. So Dr. White actually brought up a point that I was going to make is that there are some students who are thriving learning online and learning at home. Mm -hmm. And I think that sometimes that gets lost in the narrative because we hear a lot of people talk about, well, there's learning loss and there's, you know, they're not able to socialize with their friends and, you know, people who focus on the negative aspects of what it has been like for the past year learning at home. But there are some good things that have happened too. So even in the discussions that I have had with the administrators at my school and thinking about how we reopen in the fall, like part of that conversation is, well, what are some things that have worked well that we should try to implement into the next school year going forward. And I think that's very important because, you know, that, like I said, we always focus on the negative, right? And then I think also speaking or thinking about a parental standpoint, and I'm not a parent, but I think the pandemic and being in the house has been stressful, not only on the parents, but also on the children. So I think sometimes we absolutely have to, you know, sort of think about our interactions with people. And then the last thing I want to say before we go to the next question is, you know, KB, thank God that you have those resources where you can take your child and put her in a school that is, you know, that is a private school and a school that is open and a school that has in-person learning. Because working in an urban school district, not all of our parents have that choice. Yeah. They have to basically, you know, play with the hand that they're dealt and they can't afford to put their children in private school. So they have to basically keep them in a public school and, you know, sort of, and, you know, especially we also deal with parents who, are first generation Americans and English is not their first language. So even communicating with them and talking to them about what their students are doing or not doing in the classroom as far as turning work in. You know, we had a meeting with one parent who didn't even realize that their child hadn't turned in any work and this child is a senior and was in danger of not graduating in June. So we sort of like everyone had to put our arms around him to kind of get him back on track and invite him, you know, to come in to make sure that he was doing his work. Yeah. And before she jumps in, I just want to say to that point, yes, I do have the resources and it's something, you, here's the thing. I know how I am blessed, but I also do think about that other kid. And I'll give you an example. When we were in regular school in the charter schools um, sector where there was an issue and I'm asking these questions of the administrators now, I got resources to bring in anybody I need to to help my child out. That, that's not an issue, right? But what I did say to them, I'm concerned about the child's mother and father who can't do what I'm doing. How are y'all treating that child? I literally said this to the principal, the assistant. I said it to all of them. I brought in therapists. I brought my mother in who 
places, kids, you're not going to tell me nothing. Because guess what? I might not know the education system, but I got a line of people that I can call. And guess what? Came. And I paid for them to come. Because I don't care. But here's what I said. Now I'm thinking about that kid who can't have this. Who doesn't have this. What are you doing for that kid? So while you're right, Elle, I, I can do those things, but best believe, I think that's something that all parents should be thinking about, especially when you have the wherewithal, you have the resources, still advocate for that a kid that's not your kid to make sure that they're not slipping down the cracks or calling attention to certain pieces. So, you know, that's, that's what I'll say to that. So I have a question. Um, and also I have a little bit of an education background because right after I graduated from college, I taught, it was like a discrete math class for high school seniors and ninth graders. And I also taught um, special ed kids at a local high school back in Alabama. But question for you, because I couldn't get the teaching tactic down even in person. So what tactics have been successful for you with teaching in a virtual environment? Go slow and be patient for one thing, because the virtual world moves a lot slower than the real world. And have empathy and understanding, be forgiving. Like if I, I have due dates, but I, I'm, I'm not, I don't hold very hard on those due dates. You know, like you can make up work, you can make up zeros. You can take a test again if you want. You know, I mean, I, it's really being flexible and just being consistent, having, having like a pattern, like don't have like similar lessons, similar assignments. Um, I incorporate a lot of games. I use a lot of games to, to teach and like just to have like something fun, you know, because it gets really dry. But number one is just like be flexible, be forgiving, be patient. And, the, the, and if you show that to the students, they show that for you and just like build a community online as much as you can, you know, because if, if the students feel that you care about them, they'll come online. You know, I have students that will show up to my class because I adhere to the things that I've, I've just said, you know, empathy and everything. But there are other like harder teachers who are very rigorous and give way too much work. They like don't really put in the effort, you know, like in this virtual world, emotions matter a lot. And if you have that empathy and you are mindful of their socio-emotional well-being, you know, it, that's what works. Like you can have whatever assignments just as long as like, it's not too much. Just if you build community as much as you can in the virtual world, the, the kids will respond. Do you think you're losing something if you not giving as many assignments? Like, or do we think, and I, I think this was a question even from, you know, our, our, you know, team. I know that there's a thought that this pandemic is forcing us to change what the status quo is and how the country looks at school, you know, in general. But do you think that that's gonna carry on once we come back in person? Like, do you think those liberties, and this is for everybody, do, you know, do you guys, you know, as educators, do you all think that those liberties are gonna still be handed off? Like, is there an expectation, you know, like around that? I, I'm, I'm wondering about that. I hope it does. Like, I hope a lot of like, a lot of this, like, I feel like a greater awareness has occurred, you know, like, I feel like we're kind of going through a great awakening through COVID times. And I, I hope that it carries on. But I mean, to be perfectly honest, it seems like they're 
wanting to implement um, standardized tests. I mean, honestly, they the first thing they did when they opened up the high schools in New York City is give the SAT. You know, it seems like they're going back to just, you know, that's where the money is. That's where the money is. Wait, where is the money? Wait, tell me about this money train to the SAT? I don't know this. I mean, the college board has to make money. All the test makers have to make money. Oh. Standardized, standardized tests aren't given, aren't made by the state. They're made by companies. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So these companies need to make money. They have contracts with whatever localities, governments to give students the test. I mean, they're being flexible with it because we get to ask the students if they want to take these tests. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm not sure why you would want to. We're making it optional. <laughs> exactly. And it just so happens if you're in the building, you're stuck taking it. Mm-hmm. You know? So like, like we have to give a regular English exam to English language learners. And so we have to survey them to see if they want to take it. The top down instruction is sort of discourage them from taking it because they don't really want too many people in the building. They don't want to, to risk any sort of, because we, had, we actually had... Um, a student come in with COVID during the SAT. And so they, they don't really want too many students in the building if it's unnecessary. And since the test isn't really being counted for anything, there really isn't a purpose to give it. So it's just, I mean, like I said, I hope that this change and this understanding carries over, but you know, like from what's happening in this spring semester, these standardized tests, like it, 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 seems like they're trying to go right back to pre-COVID. Just really quickly, it's funny you mentioned that, Dee, because my school, it's a college preparatory school. So Mm -hmm. all of the kids who come to my school are planning to go to college when they graduate. So honestly, that's what their thought process is. So not only did we invite the 11th graders to come in to take the SAT, we are also planning to administer AP exams next month. So it's so funny that you mentioned that. And the thing that College Board has done is that they have made some tests mandatory that students have to take in person. So the issue that we are facing is one, trying to sort of you know, schedule these dates, but also because we have in-person learning three days a week, you know, trying like trying to manage that schedule as well as find the teachers to come in and proctor those in-person exams. Um, But then also, you know, there are some AP tests that College Board has said, you know, students can take online, they can take them virtually. So it's, uh, you know, I just wanted to make a quick comment about that. It's, you know, it's interesting that you say that, you know, thankfully, our students don't have to take PARC, right, which is a standardized test, you know, that students have to take every year, you know, depending on their grade level. But those tests, you know, by that College Board administers, like you said, they have to make money somehow. So students are still taking, you know, those AP exams, those ACTs and SATs as well. And I just want to say, D makes a good point. The discussion around standardized testing is, is everything right now. And there's an article I can send you, KB, about the big business of standardized testing. Because mm. it's, anytime this conversation comes up, I have this article on deck to send <laughs> because I'm like, oh, let me send you this. But also I think this, and I'll try to keep this brief because I could go on and on about this in relation to policy, but something for else for us to consider is the changes that are being made in higher education around standardized testing and what our schools are 
what are what some of our colleges and universities are requiring for entry, right? And so I'm mm-hmm. thinking about these yeah. quote unquote upper echelon schools. And I put that in quote unquote. I want to be very clear it, about it. It need to be in quote unquote, because we know I, some people paying I, for them. Go. I want to be very clear about that, but we've got our you know, there's there was an article out in Ed Week or maybe Washington, I can't remember, but around schools like Harvard not requiring standardized testing for entry for application, right? And the way that has caused a drastic increase in their application pool, right? So that's something else to keep in mind when we're thinking about preparing students for college, which which schools are requiring that now, which schools are not, and will that be a policy that they continue on in, in, in connection to what Dee said? Is that something that we're gonna implement and institute permanently or is it not? The other piece that I wanna mention is provisions within ESSA, the Every Student Succeed Act, that talks about ways that states can create innovative testing mechanisms, right? I won't get too much into that because some people find that completely boring, but (laughs) you need to be knowledgeable about what's going on in the testing world and the ways Mm -hmm. that our states are using that pot of funds through ESSA to create innovative testing mechanisms so that we can be ready the next time this happens or so that we can hopefully work on the equity around what we know to be biases within testing. Yeah. And also don't forget to monitor what your states are doing with that COVID funding. What's happening with the the CARES Act funding as well as the American Rescue Plan funding and what's funneling down from the federal government and what are your states doing with that and how is that gonna funnel down into your local schools and districts because they need to be, they should be held accountable to by parents and teachers with regard to how they're gonna spend that money, where they're gonna put that money and how that's gonna impact the education of your child um, in next year and for years to come. Yeah. D, are y'all having conversations as a union about those kind of things, like following that money and seeing where those fundings go? Or is the union, the teachers union generally kind of how to support you guys more? Like, what it's is that? More how to support us yeah. in, the, okay. in the system. Okay. That's yeah. what I was wondering. All right, cool. Now, this is good. I think these are definitely pieces that we all kind of want to understand. And, and I guess, you know, you know, Dr. White, you already mentioned that you are definitely pro opening schools. I will definitely say I am pro as well, um, if it wasn't clear already. Uh, where do you kind of sit? And, you know, L, I think you've kind of gone back and forth on it, but you've become more comfortable uh, with it. Of course, your school's open. D, where you sit kind of with that and what brought you to that, you know, place? Um, I sort of sit somewhere in the middle, I guess, because I feel like it's up to the parent to decide what they're comfortable with. At my yeah. school specifically, 90% of the students have opted for a remote. Really? Yeah. The majority of students that I teach are at home. Elle, your school, you told me a lot of your students are home, which I was very surprised by. So I think it's twofold that people are at home. So I would say, um, sort of like Dee said, we sort of reconfigured and resend out invitations for the last nine weeks because we're going to start that um, actually this week starts the last nine weeks but I think it's twofold why parents have decided not to send their children back in person at my school I think the first reason is is that one a lot of people still don't think that it's safe Uh, my school is one of the schools that is over enrolled Like our building is built for about 440, 450 students. We have 600 students that are enrolled. 
So a lot of people, DSC your face, I'll respond to that in a second. But, um, but that's one reason, right? They just don't feel you know, comfortable being back in the building. But also the second reason is, is that we have what our district has called a CARES classroom model, which essentially means that children are still learning online. There's no live teaching in the building. So we have students who are in the same classroom, but they may be in different classes. They have headphones and they're still learning on their laptop. What is the purpose of that? So for some students, they need a different, they need a change of scenery. No, I'm saying, why isn't teacher there? Like, what is the purpose? I understand why the, the student is there. So, so our particular school, our administration, along with surveys from the parents and sort of the instructions that we received from our district, each school could basically make up its own in-person learning model. So we listen to the parents, we listen to our staff. And mind you, even though I am an administrator, this happened just four months ago. So I came in on like, what all this is going, in the middle of all this going on. So I will say after like surveying our school community and our stakeholders, we decided not to change the master schedule. And, you know, as um, Dee said, you know, high school is completely different from elementary school. Because if you have an elementary school student, if they are with a third grade teacher, that third grade teacher is teaching them everything and they can be with that person all day. High school is completely different because they have different teachers teaching them different subjects or one, and then two, just because you and a classmate are in the same grade, doesn't necessarily mean that you all are taking the same classes. Like you might, yeah. the only classes that you may take that are the same are actually probably English. And that is, and that's like starting in ninth grade, right? But as you get older, you might have one student who's taking an honors class and you might be taking AP, you know? I was gonna say, what about honors? They did away with this? <laughs> Because we weren't all in the same class, yeah. So right, that's what I'm saying. So you have okay. different levels of the same subject. So like, so even if we're in the same grade level, and like, let's say that one student is taking U.S. history in 11th grade, his classmate might be taking AP U.S. history. So even though they're in the same grade level, you know, they might, you know, they might be taking different classes. They might be taking different math. So one student might be taking algebra two another student might be taking calculus. So trying to really sort of figure out how we could make it work with having some teachers in the building, some teachers teaching from home, like that just would have completely obliterated our master schedule. And I think our administrators, well, I say are, because I am one now, so let me change that. I think we decided to really kind of save our teachers this year and let them finish the school year teaching virtually. And I will say on Wednesday, so Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, and Friday is when our students have like their academic classes. And on Wednesdays, before we started in-person learning, those were like non-instructional days. So teachers would have office hours, that's when clubs would meet. But for in-person learning, we have teachers come in and do non-instructional activities with students. And a lot of our ninth graders have really taken advantage of that because they've never been in the building. They may not know their classmates. They may not know their teachers except to see them online. 
So allowing them to come into the building and have that interaction helps to build community. They also get to meet people and then they also learn sort of the area around our school. So like not all the teachers do things in the building. Sometimes they may like walk to the national mall or like walk around the school, all that good stuff. So, okay. So you're talking to a person who is very, y'all know I'm black and white, right? This sounds like fluff to me. I'm just going to say it, right? Because my thing is, I'm still going to say some damn hours of actual education are being missed or was it too much before? Like was, were we doing too much before? Somebody need to tell me something because walking around, and I guess this is what Dr. White was talking about earlier about they are learning different things that they didn't get a chance to learn before. I get that, but where are the hours that they're losing? Or should I not think about my child losing hours? Maybe I'm wrong. No, you need to think about it because I love your reality. (laughs) Yeah, You're, You're talking about the reality of being a parent and functioning in this world that is dominantly white, dominantly white male, dominantly white middle class and upper class. This is reality, right? I love all this fluff about what kids can learn and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, we're in the sand. But my child going to get a job? Is my child going to be able to graduate? Is my child going to be able to compete? And so I want to just say I'm with you on that. But again, I think what I was talking about is changing the larger narrative, right? And for unfortunately for us as marginalized people, we got to think about how to change that for our children while working in a system that completely disenfranchises us, right? We got to do both. And you're thinking about this other thing, right? This practicality. And so I want to just applaud that because it sounds great to talk about what kids can learn and what they're gaining and blah, blah, blah. But that don't change nothing in four years when Kay gets ready to graduate and did she pass or did she not, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think it's a simultaneous thing. Ella, I apologize. No, I think that's even too, because, you know, D having that population of immigrant, like, I guess that's why, you know, like you said, black and brown, like when it comes down to it, are we going to lose? Kate not going to lose because I'm going to make sure she doesn't. But then what about the rest of these kids? You see what I'm saying? And I know I'm killing her a little bit. I'll be honest, y'all. I'm the parent that is like on her and probably not doing it in the best way because I get irritated and I'm like, I just showed you this division problem. Why don't you get this? I just did this with you last week and this week. I don't understand why you're not grasping this. So I know I need to take a step back. I'll admit that one. So I'm just wondering from y'all's standpoint, because you guys do focus in this minority population, where them albums finna go? What is this going to, maybe we don't know the answer yet, right? Dr. White, like you said, like maybe we don't know the answer yet. Yeah, I think that's a hard question to answer, but I think... I think the kids are learning resilience. Like there's like an underlying, like like I have students who are learning how to function on the computer better than they could have a year ago. You know, I was, I was doing tech issues a year ago that I'm not even dealing with anymore. So that's one thing. And that's, that's, that's a real world skill that's, 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 you can monetize, you know? And I mean, I feel like I don't know. I'm, I'm hoping that there's going to, because I feel like COVID has unpacked a lot in our society that a lot of people weren't aware of, like, you know, people of like my caucasity. And I hope that this, when we get past COVID, you know, that we'll hold on to this awareness and it can be, we can make the systemic changes that are necessary to, to not have this as, as, as an issue, you know, but I mean, that's a tough, that's a tough question to answer. Like learn, I keep hearing about learning loss, learning loss, learning loss. 
but I feel, I feel like there are some gains that we won't fully see until we're at the other side of this. Yeah. You know, like there's a lot of character building that's happening right now that, I mean, there's a lot of characters. Just want to say that by the by, (laughs) I might have to contact you D for my qualitative research. Oh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) And L actually. (laughs) All right. So guys, quick question. As more people become vaccinated and things return to normal, what are some of the things that you would hope would stay in education or the new normal? Because I don't think things will ever go back to the way that they were. But since now we're kind of in a hybrid learning environment, what are some of the changes that you are hoping will stick around? I'm hoping that, I mean, with COVID and all of this, not, I'm not sure if you can relate it to the virtual learning, but with COVID, we've, education is now looking at like the effects of, of social emotional, like social emotional issues, you know, like there's, there's a sense of, there's now emotion and feeling and empathy involved with education. And I hope that continues. I hope it's not just lip service. I mean, for the most part, I've just had to do these ridiculous PowerPoint PDs about socio-emotional learning. But I mean, I'm, I'm, I feel like on the ground, like in, with my students, I'm learning a lot as well. You know, like they're, the, the students aside, I'm learning how to be a better teacher through all of this, because this has truly tested my patience, you know, especially with like my AP class, I need to make it rigorous enough to give them a chance on the AP exam, but not so rigorous that I, I flood them and like, like I overwhelm them with too much, you know, because they have packed schedules and I'm not the only teacher they have, you know? And so this is kind of putting me in check and I, I plan to carry that over. I just hope that the system around me supports that. Am I hopeful that that happens? To be honest, no. But I mean, hopefully some of some people like me can move up and be more powerful in the system and carry this into administrative and bureaucratic levels. But yeah, I just I hope that the just the general like awareness of ourselves as just whole human beings and our experiences and how valid that is and how connected our, our academics and, and mental side is connected to our emotional side, you know, like you can't divorce those two things. So I hope that that stays, you know, regardless of whether we're teaching on the internet or teaching in person, like I, I, I hope that we can still maintain humanity because I feel like I've, I'm feeling the sense of humanity, even for my own administrators, I've never been asked how are you doing so many times by my, by my principal? And he's genuinely concerned, you know? I mean, we've all like students have dealt with students, teachers, administrators have been dealing with death and loss through all of this, you know, and like we care. And I hope that this like this care and this like community just carries on. And to, to KB's question about learning loss, I thought about two things. Don't confuse movement with progress and don't confuse being busy with being productive right well, and so that. that's a word so, and so think there aren't my words i've learned them along somewhere along the line but but i think that kind of is something we can put towards ours right some of what our students learn are learning can't be quantified and it speaks to in some ways and i am a school teacher at heart i am a proponent and advocate of public education i want to be clear about that but i think 
what we are learning is how to create more efficiency within these educational spaces, right? And how to maximize our time. So maybe we be, we'll be able to do more with less time or high or hybrid time than we were able to do before COVID happened. We've learned a lot about what we can do in various places and spaces, right? So. Yeah. Shug, I think to answer your question from a parent standpoint, I would say, I think one of those things, kids don't really have to miss school anymore. Like my daughter was not feeling well the other day, was vomiting for some reason. I don't know what, she, like we ate regular food the night before I cooked. And no, it's not my cooking in case anybody wants to know. Anyway, so I, you know, and I, I messaged her teacher, listen, she can't make it in. We're going to log in online. I kind of hope that continues after. Like once we come back in person, if I need that one day so she doesn't lose that day, she can lay in her bed and just do her work. I mean, I, I think I want that. I just don't want it for an extended period all day, every day. But that component of maybe not missing a day, say your family has to go and do something and you need to go with them. Maybe I can just log in online on my iPad. Like, I hope that piece stays, that there's always this virtual camera that's there almost like in college, right? Like there's this camera in the classroom where I can still get online and still do my thing. That's awesome, KB. So D, we have uh, one final question for you. And before you mentioned, you know, that your principal had been doing like a really good job of like checking in with you and seeing how you are and discussing your social emotional health. So what have you been doing and whether it's you as an individual or even you like with your family or with your fellow teachers and educators, but what are some things that you have been doing to make sure that your mental health and that you're, and that you're taking care of yourself during this time, because it's not easy <laughs> at all to, you know, to give to our students, but then to also make sure that we are okay too. So what are some things that have worked for you over the past year? Um, drawing boundaries, you know, like, especially when you're teaching virtually, your day ends up being to like 6 p.m. sometimes, you know, and you just like, when work and home are in the exact same place, you know, you just got to learn to like schedule yourself, you know, um, exercise. I've, I've, I've picked up on meditating. I don't meditate every day. Like I hoped I would, but you know, when I have those moments where I need to, I do like breathing exercises and pull it together. I don't fixate on assignments and like getting work done, you know, like I ensure that students get work done. But the first thing I, whenever I address a student, I've, a student who has not been online or hasn't been doing work, I approach them in the like emotional way. Like, how are you, how are you doing? And I, I try to like bring them into my classroom because I care, not because they're not doing work, you know? And like, I've, I've, I change my approach and I feel like that gets more results because some of my colleagues are very just like fixated on assignments and they'll lose students because they just seem very robotic. You know, I've, I'm learning to respect myself as a whole person. So when things are too much, I close my computer and that's it. You know, I've taken personal days because I was going to have a panic attack, you know, and like maneuvering in that's because I'm five days a week in the building you know, and our students are learning in a similar way that you are. We call them pods. Like they sit in a classroom and they learn virtually. Most of our teachers have a medical accommodation to be at home. There's only 10 of us in the building. So we're running everything, you know, and like, 
like I have students that need me in person. And so I'll bring them into my classroom where I teach and I, I do what I can. But when I feel overwhelmed, like I said, I pull back, you know, and I don't let, I try to not let myself feel guilty about that. Cause you know, when I decide to jump back in, I have all of me to jump back in, you know, it's better to have all of me than just like a piece of me that's about to break down. So for sure. For sure. Yeah. I love that D. Actually, that boundary piece hit me because I think I'm I am. I, I'm like that claw mom, right? Like, you need to make these grades, right? Like I did this. You need to do that. <laughs> I think I'm learning to let go some stuff. And like you say, with boundaries, say when I it's too much, right? So if she has a week where they're out because somebody tested positive, I'm like, listen, I'm not gonna chase you this week not going to chase you. Your work not done, the iPad gets taken away. If you don't understand something, you're going to do this until you learn it. And it's helped me to be able to release. So you know, as a 10-year-old, that if you don't get your stuff done, then you're going to pay the consequence later on when I do stop working or when I take that pause. Because for me, the I was like working, and I think I was talking to Dr. Well, I was talking to everybody about this. I was working you know, I would pause, you know, from like maybe six to eight or six to eight 30 or bedtime. And then I would start back working. So my day would just keep like this entire circle, like the whole day. And then I get off the computer at 12 midnight, one o'clock in the morning. And then I start back up at eight 30. It was like no life. You know what I'm saying? And yeah, it's, it is, I think it's a boundary. I think we probably have all learned boundaries from working in this environment in whatever way even you know Suge is an engineer so like even from her like having to do her well she said she didn't learn it that good she shaking her head no so you know and I think we all gonna still struggle with it I don't think that's gonna stop you know what I'm saying but I think it's a constant work in progress with trying to figure that out and and, and get that right I'm, I'm still not there but with the help of my therapist look I had to go get a therapist during the damn time shit that's how bad it was okay okay <laughs> look, like, right like i had to go i was like you know what let me go sign back up because <laughs> this ain't working for me so that's how like and you know i'm i'm an intense person shit do y'all don't know me forever i'm intense if this world like that i've created is not working in such a way i'm freaking so yeah so this was awesome so let me ask you dr white for your last question what are some takeaways or last comments that you would have for the audience? Um, I think both you guys have provided so much insight, you know, just answering Suge and I's question. I'm kind of speaking from this parent mode and kind of be like, wait a minute. Um, what are some last comments or, you know, thoughts that we should kind of leave out with here as well? Well, I just first want to thank Suge and L and KB and X for having this podcast. It is giving me life on a Friday afternoon. And I mean that with most sincerity because I can't wait till everybody hears it and knows about this podcast. Yeah, I, I could say so much more than that, but I'm not. And that's not just because I'm biased because y'all are in so many right groups, sororities and whatnot. But, <laughs> but, 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 but because it's giving me life. Like if you could know the day I had today, I didn't even want to do this. And now... I feel so much better because I'm amongst people who understand and are like-minded. The other thing I want to say is thank you, Dee, for your contributions to education and teaching our children. 
I've been there, right, 15 years, and I, I'm most proud of that. And so I just want to thank you for continuing to do the work because the trenches is the most important place, right? The other thing, last thing I want to say is that what I think KB is talking about, again, I want to hone in on reality. She talks about being a claw parent, right? Letting up on Kay and all of this and all of that. But what she realizes that is that particularly we as black and brown people, particularly African-American people, we don't have the space to let up. It's a nice thought. It's a beautiful thought. It sounds it so good. It's rainbows but, in the sky. But now, but I'm sure, I'm, and I'm sure Suge and Elle can agree. I know because I grew up with KB. We didn't get a chance to be mediocre. And so mm -hmm. I think I think what KB is communicating to her daughter is love, right? And she, claws are fine because K is not going to have the option to be mediocre the way that other people will have the option to do so. And so while we're working, again, I want to reemphasize, while we're working on equity and change and diversity and inclusion and all of these wonderful things that should be happening, don't forget that we as Black people, particularly African-Americans in this country, particularly the descendants of slaves and sometimes indigenous people, we don't have the luxury to let up. So don't feel bad for being on top of your child. Mm -hmm. Because at the end of the day, if you're not, nobody else will be. Yeah. And so I just want to applaud you for that and say that it's got to be both. Don't feel bad about doing that because that's how we got where we are, right? That's how we got to be self-sufficient and the people that we are. And so I just want to say thank you for that and for setting that example as a parent, right? So it's two things, not one. Yeah, I think I just got to figure out that balance, right? Because I know, and I mean, shoot, D, shoot, you don't probably know me the longest out of everybody on this podcast, but I think because I showed up like I did, right? I think <laughs> D said she remember when I came to the school, <laughs> you know, like I think, like I, I like that way I say I didn't have a choice. I felt like I never had a choice. And I've been talking about that even at work, you know, in our work environments. I'm gonna D and I lead. So for everybody else, that's diversity, equity, and inclusion. I'm gonna lead for our medical team. And you know, when you think about it, like you think about those liberties that other people have had, I'm just now starting to release some of that stuff. Like where I have to show up in such a way that I don't get these things that I, you know, everybody else can just come in. Now nah, I got to go, go extra hard. Show, listen, y'all, I got locks. So when I get on a call and start speaking, they looking at me, they eyes go like this. And here what I say, I just look like this. And I say that, I say that intentionally because you thought one thing, but when I open my mouth up, then you see another thing. But these are the things that I have to do every day. And I think that's what I'm thinking about, right? Dr. White, you know that. I'm thinking about what, What's the setup for Kay? I don't want to push her over the edge because she's so different from me. She's so different. Y'all, she like artsy and shit. She want to explore and, you know. Exactly. I know. Like, no, I listen. Yeah, like seriously. <laughs> she, she, we we going to be here all day if we talk about this, but we going to do this another day. <laughs> that was my other point, Elle, was that y'all need to have a part two. <laughs> but we just need to talk about KB and how she treats little KB. <laughs> I already invited little KB to come with me for the summer so we can do dance class. Yes. Rowing, rowing yes. on the lake. I love that. I'm yes. setting it up. Don't worry about it. I'm setting okay. it up. <laughs> Again, that's why I say it's got to be both. But yeah. I don't want, we got to be intense though. Like we lose that. These people have us thinking that we can let up and we can't. It's and not. Listen, I 
always wanted to ask somebody of the Caucasian descent, D, you teach these types of kids. Do you realize that? Like, is that a known thing for you? Like, I you you might not be the right person because I feel like you a little bit more to um, like what's happening known, in real life. Known amongst amongst us Caucasians. <laughs> yeah, um, like I mean, I, it, it it it's it. I can't. You can't speak for, for us to understand just, that because yeah. we're not experiencing it. You know, yeah. like you have to expose yourself to that knowledge continuously. Yeah. You know, and the the society. I mean, we're privileged. You know, we're completely unaware of like what we're getting, and like like we we don't have to think of things that y'all have to think of, and we don't have to check ourselves like y'all have to check yourselves. You know, and like amongst the general like generally no it's not it's not it's not something that white people are aware of at all no it takes yeah. it takes an active pursuit to to not be racist as a white person to be honest like the baseline is like i mean let, let me just say it i white people are racist mm -hmm. you know and it's just yeah. it's you're it's when you grow up in this society the the white supremacy it's just I mean, it's it it, go, it ranges from like overt, you know, Confederate flag wearing racist to like the nicest, most well intentioned racist. The one who Gilbert I'm not racist because I have a black by. friend, you know, like the overt are the best ones by the by because at least you know where they're coming from. Exactly, exactly, and yeah, that's, that's what everybody says. Moving from the, from the south. south to the north, like the racism in the south, like punches you in the face, like you mm -hmm. see it coming. But the racism in the north is like insidious, it, like it's it's in wow. the surfaces you know it's below the surface but like like the struggle is not known by white people no yeah and i think that's important i know dr white we talked about this before sometimes when you get to certain levels even our people right even the black people or people of color they'll get to a certain level and forget and that's why i made that comment earlier around i went in that school that day yes i can bring in experts you know Hell, I might have needed to fly your ass in, Dr. White. Like, I don't care. I don't care who what I need to do for my child. But I do think about that kid that doesn't have that. So I think I, I love that, you know, that conversation we had before about that. Like, it can be our own people. And we have to be cognizant of it, too, as we climb these levels and these, you know, Suge and L are future parents. They are at a certain level. They got to keep remembering what it could be or what it's for somebody else's kid. So I think we all play this role of advocacy. And I remember a teacher, Dean Ash, I, I, you know, I thought it was so funny. She even had a side conversation with a white lady. I liked her. She liked me. I think because she saw that I was not with the shits. Okay. And this is again at the, the charter school. And she said, you know, I just love what you said in that meeting. Like, I, we need more parents like you. And I know every parent, and it's not that they don't want to. I, I know what, Dr. White, what you're going to say. Like, I know it's not that they don't want to. Sometimes they're not, they haven't been in the places that we've been and have had the education that we've had so that we can advocate the way we can advocate. So I don't think that they don't want to. They just ain't, you know, set up to fight like we can fight. So I think we got to do that for everybody. And I just want to say, please forgive me. I'm so hype about this conversation. Y'all gonna have to shut me up. I'm promised it's gonna be my last comment. But I just want to say in, in regards to Dee's point about white people being racist, I think it was Beverly Tatum. If it wasn't, please forgive me. I can actually look this up later and give you the proper information. But I think it was Beverly Tatum out of UCLA who talks about why white people are racist and 
from a structural standpoint, why black people and other people of marginalized communities, specifically of color cannot be, it's because of the power dynamic, right? Racism, mm -hmm. the actual ability to demonstrate racism, and this, and this is from a scholarly perspective, comes with power, right? Mm -hmm. You can hate a person all day long. You cannot like a person all day long, but at the moment in which you have the power to influence their outcomes and trajectory, that hate becomes exercise racism. And that's something that, that particularly the dominant white class have that we do not, right? We might not like y'all, but we don't traditionally, and this is in a, in a collective sense, not necessarily individual, because some of us, we really do on this call have power and privilege. We've, we've kind of picked that up along the way, right? But as a collective, black and brown people typically don't have the power to exercise racism, which is why racism is so much so a white problem because y'all have the power to change the trajectories of our lives. And I think that needs to be, don't forget racism is a power dynamic. It always is and it always has been. Yeah, well done. Well, thank you so, so much, Dr. White. Thank you, Dee. We so appreciate you both for being our guests today. And you know, this is definitely a conversation that can go on and on and on. So, you know, I definitely think we will bring you all back to really, uh, to really delve into this even more, right? And honestly, it will be interesting to even have this conversation like after the school year 21, 22 starts and to see how things have changed even more from the last two previous years. So thank you both again for being our guests today. Uh, for our Dope Gifted in Black segment, we are highlighting Tashara Jones, who is the first Black woman to be elected the mayor of St. Louis, Missouri. And she will take her swearing-in ceremony. It actually was going to be held on April 20th. So we are just very, very excited for her, she, for making history. Um, she also talked about how her decision to run for mayor. Uh, because she had an experience, or more so her 13-year-old son had an experience um, from having a gun pulled on him from walking, just walking across the street to her father's house. And that experience really motivated her to run for mayor. And it's also important to know that she is also a member of the greatest sorority in the world, Delta Sigma Theta Sorority Incorporated. Incorporated. So shout out and congratulations again to Ms. Jones. We are so excited for her. Once again, thank you to our guests, Dee and Dr. White. And KB and Shug, do you all have any final words before we close out? I'm full. I'm straight. Thank you for coming out. God bless and good night. Don't forget to listen, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts. Listen to us on SoundCloud, Spotify, and Google Play. Connect with us on social media at Fem Noir Files on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thank you for joining us for another episode of the Fem Noir Files. Bye!